it may be that I know the most medicine in the room, but unless I can actually convey why that is important and that client is able to actually not only afford it, but have the time commitment it requires, have the energy, the emotional investment, all of those things, we really don't get anywhere. Always learning the medicine, but what about communication? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VEDEX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and my return guest today is board-certified canine and feline practitioner, Dr. Ryan Engler. She's the executive director of clinical and professional skills at University of Arizona's Veterinary School. When I interviewed her back in 2021, we talked to new vet students. But a year before, she'd published a guide to oral communication in veterinary medicine. Given the breadth of ideas she discusses in that book, many of which are drawn from the Calgary-Cambridge model of patient communication from human medicine, it was impossible to cover it all in this interview. But we'll talk clients, team members, vet students, and yes, how to grapple with how much there is to learn about talking to folks in a hospital. Does this all need to be learned in one big gulp? No. Do you need to apply every researched and tested communication technique to your approach or your hospital's approach or your mentee? No, says Ryan. Here's her thinking. It's about saying, what are the skills in the toolbox and what applies to me and what applies to my client? What feels natural to me and what is my authentic voice? So there are many, many skills. There's over 70 in the Calgary Cambridge Guide. I tend to use 19 or so, but that doesn't mean we have to apply them to every conversation. And so I really encourage my students, look at them, see what resonates with you and go from there. Okay. I've seen a reference. This is the second time I've heard referenced in the last six months, the Calgary Cambridge Guide. And you recently were at a conference in Italy where I think that was a focus where the organizer brought people to talk about communication according to this what is the Calgary Cambridge Guide? Because I'm going to take a wild guess and say most veterinarians have not heard of this, or maybe you say they have. I don't know. No, I would say the the older generation, I include myself in that. I graduated in 2008. I don't feel old, but when I was in school, we had zero communication. So it was a rare vet school that touched upon it. Jane okay. Shaw at CSU was among the first in the United States to cover these topics. Washington State does a great job and then I've embedded them into the programs that I've been a part of, mainly Midwestern and currently the University of Arizona. The Calgary Cambridge Guide is essentially a model from human healthcare of how do we structure the consultation? So if we think about it at its most basic, whether it's a human patient or a veterinary client, they're coming for a particular purpose. And so we have to think what goes through the steps of the person walking in through the door to that consultation to the point where they actually exit. And so it breaks it down into initiating the conversation. So all the things that every veterinarian does are captured in this. So that means history taking, it means greeting the client and then walking through step by step. And so it's a process by which we can really think about breaking down the consult into its bite-sized components. And what does that mean? And what skills can we make use of in order to maximize the time that we have with our client. Can I ask about 
So breaking it down into bite-sized pieces, a conversation in some cases to many of us at one time or another in our life feels like a flow. So it feels like you don't quite know when you entered it and you don't quite know where it's going to go when you're there. And then you don't quite know when it's going to end. And when it's broken down in these ways into pieces, it feels more consumable, but it also feels like a natural thing has been, you've taken a map and laid it on reality and you've broken reality up into these pieces and reality doesn't feel like that when you're doing it. So like to have 17, even you just mentioned 17 out of 90 I'm going to have 17 things in my head when I start talking to someone. And then you're like, how do these bite-sized pieces get consumed and added to a very complex interaction? That's a great question. That's what we take about two years in our curriculum to go through. And it is very (laughs) complex, right? And it is about simplifying. And I think that for those of us who are already in clinical practice, it's not about recreating the wheel. It's not about saying everything you do is wrong because that's not true, right? Veterinarians are out there doing an amazing job each and every day. The workload, the force, the burden that is upon practitioners is enormous. I have so much respect for everybody out there in the trenches. And I think that it's less about recreating what you do and more or less building in efficiency and thinking about what do we do really well and why does that work for us and putting a name on skills that many of us are already using. For the new graduates or for the students that are training in medicine, it puts a name on what are we actually doing so that we can identify it when we see it in other individuals and that we can then replicate it in our own way, not necessarily using the same exact words because I don't want to create cookie cutters of myself. I want us all to have our own voice and recognize that clients all want individuals with different voices, right? We're all drawn to different practitioners, but I think that it helps students name what is it that we're doing in the room? Because when we're talking about medicine, It's very easy to break down the facts of a case, right? What's the diagnosis? What's the prognosis? What's the treatment options? But then we get to talk about communication and it was historically called soft. It drives me crazy, but it was, right? Because, well, what is that? How do we test it? How do we assess it? Where's the evidence? Some people think that they just are naturally good at it and others have to learn it. So where can we actually help our students improve? In the same way that we would encourage them to practice suturing any of the classic skills that we think of when we think about training clinicians. Where has the shift? So thinking about how a clinician communicates and they use, they lean heavily on some of these tools and they, they've never tried other ones or they've tried them and they don't work for them and they don't like them. And then thinking the clients come in with their own preferences for how they want to be communicated with. Maybe I just jumped out at me from skimming through the book, a couple things that are feel old fashioned. So medical paternalism. So I'd like to talk about that. And another thing about health literacy, about how much a person wants. Some clients come in, I think, in the impression from the clinician and the impression from the pet owner, you want me to tell you what the problem is and you kind of just trust me to do the right thing. And so I'm going to tell you what the problem is, and I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. And then you're going to say, thank you, doctor. I'm comfortable. I'm cool with this. Tell me what medical paternalism is and how that might be bad. And then tell me about what more education might look like. I don't know if that's too big a question. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, absolutely. Um, I think that what you really touched upon there is the idea that clients have a voice. They have a say in the consult. And some of them really want to lean more on the doctor. So what you're referring to really are, what are the models of care? 
And paternalism, I wish we had a different word for it. I don't know what it would be. I don't necessarily invent the words, but it's from the older era where patients, so human patients or veterinary clients, really came to just be sponges. They would soak up what we had to share. And so we were essentially, as doctors, thought to be the sage on the stage. And that's not my terminology. I forget who used it. I love it. So I I held on to it, right? But the idea is the doctor is in charge. The doctor leads the consultation. The doctor tells you what you're seeing, why you're seeing it, what you're going to do to fix it, period. And options are perhaps given, but not always. And the role of the doctor is really seen as the expert in the room. Now, there's an important consideration to think about in that we really need that type of approach in certain types of practices. So emergency medicine, if a dog comes in, it's hit by a car, it's having trouble breathing, it codes, we need to be that expert in charge. We need to find out if the client wants to conduct CPR, but we don't have time to have a conversation in that moment. You got to get in, jump in there and do it. And so paternalism in and of itself isn't bad. And there are still some clients that would like to see it that way. Yes. However, the transition as we get into newer generations, and perhaps it's a combination of things, really, probably the technology, younger generations now have the internet. They were born with the internet, right? I didn't. At age 16, I remember the dial-up AOL, and you had to wait forever. And it was like a subscription for a month that my father let me use. And then it cost too much, so we had to cancel it at the end. (laughs) And it took another month to cancel, so you had to pay for a month of service. But now information's at our fingertips. Anyone, anywhere can find information. Now, it doesn't mean it's the correct information. We complain as veterinarians, we often call it the Dr. Google generation. And I actually fight less with Dr. Google because that's a client who I can work with. It's a client that wants to find answers. So they're invested in care. But in general, that type of client wants to say they've read stuff. They want to say, well, hey, you told me I should give this medication, but I read that it could cause kidney disease and I don't want that. What are we going to do about that? What are the safety mechanisms there? And so there's this general transition from sage on the stage doctoring to guide on the side. And along with that comes that recognition that the client is an expert too, not in everything, right? Maybe they're not an expert in cardiothoracic surgery, but they're an expert in what their dog needs. What is it like to be normal for that dog? What can they afford? There's this move to relationship-centered care, finding out what the expectations, wants, needs are, and working together on shared decision-making to make choices with the client that are best for the tripartite relationship. They're best for the patient, they're best for the client, they're best for the doctor, and really working within that balance. There's also the new buzzword spectrum of care. And that's, in a way, I see as that as marrying relationship-centered care with all things beyond just finances. Any veterinarian knows finance can be a major barrier to care. But there's a lot of other aspects where we maybe are not offering alternatives or options because we've been so set on this is the gold standard we have to do it this way and it's not until you reach a barricade and you can't do gold standard that you realize oh i have to try something else and we've been doing that for years james harriet did that years and years ago right when he reached those obstacles it's just now putting a name to it of saying it's okay 
to not do ivory tower. We have to find out what works best and maybe gold standard doesn't work best for that patient. So let's figure out what we can do to help. So I know having talked to older practitioners through the years, and then now I wonder you getting brand new veterinary students coming in, you mentioned tripartite. So in a normal human medicine situation, there's the doctor or the medical caregiver and the patient, and the patient knows what it feels to be like in that body. The patient needs to make complicated decisions about their body. They don't fully understand, but it's their body. So we're talking about autonomy in bioethics and autonomy in infer. You are responsible for your body. Then you run into this tripartite thing. I feel like veterinarians, and I'm. Uh, that's why I'm asking about, I wonder how the young ones feel, because the old ones would often complain, I'm trying to do what's right for the animal, and the barrier is the person who came in with the animal. I know this person doesn't understand this animal's biology. They don't understand what's going on with the disease function. They don't understand what's going on with the injury. I know they think they know enough to make a decision about, well, the dog doesn't need that. The cat doesn't need that. And the veterinarian feels like I'm the one responsible for I'm the voice for the animal. And I think that's still where veterinarians stand. And they should be because they are the voice for the animal. But that puts them in a different situation than the doctor. The doctor comes and says, I can tell you what's going on with your body, but it's your body. And the veterinarian's put in the position of like a pediatrician. I can tell you what's going on in your child or pet's body, but you're going to have to make the decision about it. But I'm in a tough situation because I'm supposed to be a voice. Yeah, it's a huge challenge. And I would say that even the newer generation struggles with that. I face okay. that in the classroom. It's that constant battle between I'm being trained to know what's right for that patient. Yes. And um, we battle that a lot, or I should say we, we encounter that a lot that first year in, in clinical communication class where we have simulations and the actors question a student. Yeah. And a lot of times, and, and I'll, I'll put myself in that group when I was a new vet, the client could ask a question and how I hear or perceive that question being asked could be very different than the intent with which that question was asked. So for example, we have a simulation in class, very real to life, where a dog comes in for a dentistry. There's no actual animal in the room because this is just communication between the client and the vet or the vet student. And come to find you've done an exam on the dog and you're, be, you're told heading into the room that the dog has a significant heart murmur and cannot go forward with anesthesia until we see a cardiologist, a board certified veterinary cardiologist for a heart ultrasound. And one of the lines that the client routinely shares is a question about why can't you do the ultrasound here? Is it necessary? Why do I need to go down the street to that person? Now they say it very friendly, very nice. It's not in any way saying to the vet, you're not bright because you can't figure it out, but it's heard differently. I'm not even in that situation and I could totally see the trigger. Yeah, so there's a lot of this gut reaction, right? And so I think what our college is trying to do, what our program is trying to do is acknowledge that gut reaction. It's normal to have it, I have it. I think I'm a pretty chill person. I don't really like conflict. I tend to think the best of people, but put yourself in the shoes. Yeah. of You're in that room. You said what you think you need to do. And someone has a question, right? And that could be a question about anything. It could be a question about, well, do I really have to give the antibiotics for two weeks? Well, do I have to give a liquid medication? Like anything we're asked and it's acknowledging the gut reaction and saying, where is that coming from? 
maybe they've tried to give the cat liquid medicine for its whole life and the cat's 10 years old and you just met them and they're like, it's not going to happen. It's going to end up in the curtains. It's going to end up on the floor. You know, this whole process. Or sometimes they just don't get it. You don't have the equipment to do a heart ultrasound in your practice, right? And so a lot of times it's about hearing the questions and recognizing we actually can't accomplish anything in clinical practice, aside from shelter medicine, without the owner's buy-in. So it may be that I know the most medicine in the room, but unless I can actually convey why that is important and that client is able to actually not only afford it, but have the time commitment it requires, have the energy, the emotional investment, all of those things, we really don't get anywhere. And so that's what I tell my students. You have to find a plan. Now, certainly in cases of neglect or cruelty, then we have legal maneuvers that we do to make sure that a pet is not experiencing undue harm and and distress. But that aside, it's a person's right to choose. I know that some of the legislation's changing, but animals are still considered property. They're owned. And so therefore, it may make our adrenal glands squeeze if the client makes a choice that we would not do if it was our pet. But by the same token, I can think of choices that I made with my senior cat that veterinarians questioned me on. I know the medicine in that case. I know what should happen medically. But I also knew that Bailey, when she was 18, did not want IV fluids or sub-Q fluids every day for the rest of her life. So I made a hospice call, right? Okay, I know she's going to be with me less time. I can keep her comfortable, but I'm not going to force aggressive therapy. And so it's this conversation. I think as we experience what it's like to be the client, even though I'm a veterinarian, it changes our perspective and it changes the way in which we work with others. And it changes that power dynamic so that we're less expert on the stage and we are more, let's talk like we are talking now. Let's figure out what do you need? What does your pet need? What can we do today? What are you worried about? And let's get through those conversations so that we can move forward. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. So we're thinking about the entire consultation. People come in initially and there's questions asked. So there's history taking. So I need to ask you questions so we can gather information about what's going on. 
And then you move into let's do care diagnostics and treatments. You're explaining things. We get to do some diagnostics, come back. Here's what the treatment will be. And then the post care about did the person understand what we were recommending? So do they walk out to the front desk and say, I don't want to pay for this. I don't want to pay for that. I've decided not to do this. And I didn't know that. In these simulations, is there one of those three, the initial question asking, the back and forth during diagnostic and treatment, agreeing to and and answering questions, or the post when they leave, is there one part that's really rough in that simulation? I could see the triggering in the middle, but do the other two get, are they problems too? Or are they, the big problem is when we're going to have the back and forth across the exam table? That's a great question. I would say currently we have 30 simulations. And I think that the challenge there is our students are learning what it is to be a vet. They're learning how to have the medical knowledge. And so we have to break them up into pieces. So it's not reasonable for me to go from beginning to end in one sitting. So in year one, we spent a lot of time on just parts of the event. So year one is really about what are basic conversations, kind of the bread and butter conversations, the history taking, or explaining a diagnosis and explaining a prognosis. So they're chunked intentionally. And then in those conversations, as the year progresses, there are little itty bitty challenges. So they start with just normal questions, right? That are not meant to be triggering that are just, Hey, tell me more. Well, what do you mean we need to use this medication? I don't understand. And they're just meant to kind of inspire more dialogue. And then we work through over months. Well, what does that look like? Why did we have that reaction to it? Did we have a reaction and what do we do with it? And my colleague, Teresa Graham Brett really always talks about moving from reaction to response. So we acknowledge, okay, you felt triggered. Let's name why we feel triggered. And then guess what? We got to do something with that energy. So let's navigate. And so the intensity goes up over two years. So we do have employer-employee conflicts that come up. We spend most of our time client and vet. We also have veterinarian to technician conflicts because we have to work within our team as well. And so I would say at any point in the conversation, we can run into challenges. I think where a lot of veterinarians struggle, and I think back to my own personal struggles, is I would think I was doing a fantastic job with history. I'd be like, great, got the information, right? I'd I'd shoot the questions off like an assembly line, gather it all, think I'm getting the answers. And then I get to the end, I finish up my appointment, I put my hand on the doorknob, And the client says, well, wait, what about this? They have an oh, by the way. I call it an oh, by the way appointment. And I realize now I'm going to start all over, right? And you sigh because your back's to the door. You have all the nonverbals that say I'm ready to get out of here. And now I'm trapped. I have to do it. And I think what I've learned is usually that's a problem that started not because you closed out wrong. You started wrong. We didn't find out what concerns you most okay, I know you're bringing in Fluffy because Fluffy has bald patches on her thigh. What else, right? What other things do you want us to address today? And so those are those areas where then we get grumbly as a veterinarian at the very end. And we think, this client doesn't let us go. It's an, oh, by the way, I'm going to be stuck forever in this room. And really, it's not the client's fault. It's that we didn't elicit their perspective at all. They were being really patient. But they didn't hear probably half of what we said because they're like, I don't want to forget that question. I need that question, right? And I think about myself in a doctor's appointment. 
right? I've had knee surgery. I have my list of questions. And if they don't ask me what I'm concerned about, I hold on to that list the whole time because I'm like, no, I came because I have five questions and I need them answered. Right. We need to address them. So that's that's how we try to work with our students through each part and have them reflect upon what happened. And they can watch their videos and they can actually talk about we have writing assignments because that's how you survive practice. You could have 30 appointments in a day and we need to know how do we process through what worked well and what do we need to work on? And in some cases realize we couldn't actually have done anything different. It was just the nature of the beast of how it went. So you're going to take, you're going to get in a bucket of veterinary students. And then at the end of X number of years, you're going to take them, you're going to pour them out into the workforce. And you're like, well, be free, go and, and be merry. And they're going to wind up at lots of different practices with lots of different ways of doing things and lots of high and low levels of, of engaged mentorship and high and low levels of emotional intelligence are going to tumble out into the world. When there are managers and leaders listening to this podcast now, and you're thinking about the students you have in hand, and a manager or leader says, well, do I go and get a guide to oral communication and veterinary medicine? And do I read it closely? And then do I wonder how we're doing or not doing these things? Do I start including more of this discussion at meetings? Do I try to set up a clear mentor? We're going to mentor communication. We're not sure what that looks like, but we're going to try. Is there something you wish the people out there who are already existing in middle management practice ownership, if they're thinking maybe our communication isn't totally on target, do they go to the book? Do they? What should they do? That's a great question. I think that for me, what I always wanted, and I'm speaking with the hat of a general practitioner here, never having owned a practice. What was lacking in every practice I worked at was communication, communication, communication. There was never really sit downs, right? You had the initial interview and then you had an annual review. But in between, there really was not dialogue. Now, I didn't work at huge practices with corporate and office hospital directors. I've worked at a couple of places with practice managers. I think there's a role for every single practice out there, but we need to model that. We need to lead that behavior. We need to instill a safe, supportive environment where our employees can talk to each other, with each other, with management. I think that's true really of probably any place. I think about academia as well. Unfortunately, I think we get so busy in the day-to-day of what we have to do and what to-do list we have to fill out that we forget we're people too. And so I don't expect that practice owners in their busy time memorize all these skills, right? I don't think (laughs) that's something that would be, I don't think that's something that would be feasible or attainable to many. Some may have the interest and I would definitely encourage it as a resource to turn to, but not in the sense of let's read from beginning to end. I think we think and reflect upon what's working at our practices and what isn't working and why. And right, when we hit that wall, what is it that isn't working? And a lot of times we're not having those conversations. We're waiting and shoving stuff under the rug and letting things boil up. And then all of a sudden there's an explosion, right, between two staff members or a vet and a staff member or a staff member or a vet goes off at a client. And we think it's an isolated event, but it really stems from all the stuff, all the stress, right? COVID put huge stress on everybody. And sometimes we don't just take a pause. And I think in life, 
in personal life, but also professional life, let's take a pause and say, what's going well for you here? And what isn't? What would you like to see us do more? What investment are you seeing leaders have in the business? And what's missing? And everyone's going to have a different gap, right? Not everyone wants to spend tons of time talking. Not all my students want to. But we need some outlet so that an associate vet can say, hey, I don't feel heard, right? Because if we don't have those options, then we as vets see all the clients getting the benefits of the communication. But then we never feel like we get that, if that makes sense. Do you think if you keep touch with your associate, as your veterinary students transition to associates, and maybe if they're really going crazy, they're going to go be a practice owner from the get-go and start their own thing. But when they transition out, do even with all the best training, do you think there's a natural inclination when you're overwhelmed with the medicine at the top? So it's time when they really need the mentorship and they really need to be a little slower and they really need to have time to process. That's exactly the time where the medicine is so overwhelming. It eats the entire clock and beyond. Whereas these more mature veterinarians, they've had to go through the ringer and they know to pause and they have time because their medicine is on target. When you're a little slower, your entire day's eaten up if you're expected to perform at the level do you worry that they go out and then no matter what you say, the medicine's going to eat them in the first few years and some of them will be figure it out and then some of them will grind and burn out? Yeah, I worry about my students each day, every day. I don't have kids of my own. All my students are my <laughs> kids. So I have hundreds of them out there. And yeah, I do. I, I worry for them because it's not an easy profession. I love my profession. I would not do it over again and change. I'm happy with where I'm at, but I think that it's tough, right? And I think that they go out there, they hope for a good fit. Not all will find that good fit. I didn't find that fit for years and years and years. And so I think it's about how do we support them? And yes, they are going to be slower. And we need to say, you know what, that's okay, because they're an investment, right? We want to think about it as an investment instead of an assembly line of filling a gap, right? And many of us have a gap right now, not just vet medicine, every, every business essentially. And so we need to think it's not just about putting a person in to fill the gap, but we need to work with that person, refine that person, because we don't want them to burn out in a year we've spent effort to get them to stay. They're gone, right? They're dissatisfied or disillusioned. And it trickles down. I think we worry about the same thing between preclinical and clinical here. Preclinical faculty, there's often a stressor of, well, we teach them the right way. And you're going to go and teach them the way we don't want, right? And, and we're trying to be better about that and bridge that so that our clinical faculty use and model the same communication skills. The reality is, and we spend a lot of time in class talking about, well, what happens when we don't find that fit or when we don't have that right communication skill or clients don't want that communication skill, right? When there's this mismatch, what do we do about it? And so that's really, I think, the more important thing that I as an educator can work with students on. How do we build? And I need a different word. Resilience makes people kind of cringe sometimes because... (laughs) Nobody wants to be told, just be resilient when you're going through the flames of hell, right? Like, that doesn't help. Right. I need a different word, so I need to work on my Webster's. But that's what we're spending time with students. Let's talk about 
what happens when we do have disillusionment, when we're not satisfied, when things go wrong, when you do all the medicine right and the cat still dies, or you did everything you could, but now they posted a Yelp review. So I think for me, it's a realism issue of let's be real to people. Let's be transparent to students. I don't want to never talk about the areas where people will struggle. Because if we can open up and be honest about the challenges, then we can work towards solutions. But when I was in vet school, nobody ever talked about these things. So a new area I built into all the curriculum is medical errors. What do we do about them? How do we disclose them? How do we live through them? Myself and a colleague shares very real world examples of things we did wrong and what happened. And that was very controversial the first time I ever did that at a different university because it was, we can't talk about that. And if I think about where that comes from, that gut reaction, that trigger, when I was in vet school, no one would have ever said to one of the clinicians on service, tell me about a time you made a mistake. Because we were trained, they were gods. They wrote the Bible of medicine. You carried it around like the Bible of medicine, right? And we would have been horrified, right? The very first time I made a mistake in practice, I was so embarrassed. I thought if Cornell finds out, they'll just be like, you're not part of our school anymore, (laughs) right? You're out of the club. And I was so afraid someone would find me out that I wasn't perfect because I spent so much time in school being made to feel you had to get to that gold standard level the same way we hold our clients to the gold standard level. The reality is we all make mistakes. Animals die. Sometimes we don't make mistakes, just life hits, right? I can't control a body like God, right? I'm not God. I can't control all outcomes, even if I do everything right. And so let's talk about that because then we're not shoving stuff under the carpet and then we know what to do about it and how to move through it to become the clinician you want to be. You can buy a guide to oral communication in veterinary medicine anywhere cool books are sold. And you can reach out to Dr. Engler at R-E-N-G-L-A-R-R-Engler at Arizona.edu. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. Did you love it? Leave a review, tell your friends in VetMed about us. And remember, this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to solving your leadership headaches in our VetX Leaders community. Learn more at drdavenickel.com. And until next time, just want you to know, I appreciate you.